They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey, this is Dorea. Welcome to Posse of the People. On this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and DR, as usual. We talk about the news that you don't know in the past week that's about race and justice and equity. And then I sit down and talk with Desmond Mead to discuss Florida's voting laws. Desmond's been on the podcast before. And then I chat with Chanel Powell to talk about her time on the school board and what she then comes next in education. Now, my advice is sort of simple. Let your community love you. So today I woke up and my stomach did not feel well. And I'm an old school, like ginger ale can heal most things. So I woke up, had a thing of ginger ale, and it just wasn't kicking in quickly. Like I'm like, oh, this is not good. So I tweet, you know, my stomach hurt and the ginger ale is not doing its thing. And when I tell you people are so funny, immediately the response I get is like, you know, it's not just ginger ale, it's ginger ale and lay down. And did you lay down? People like you need, you can't have Schweppes. You need, you need the other brand of ginger ale. You need to get ginger ale bold, like Canada dry. That's what it was. It was just, it was one of those things that was like, people were just so sweet and people were so like my grandmother, everybody. Uh, And it was like, I just had to receive the love that people, people gave. So make sure you're, you're letting yourself be loved on, especially in times you don't feel well. But in general, sometimes we're so bad at receiving love and it comes in a host of ways. Let yourself be loved. Let's go. Family, loved ones, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. And I'm Samson Yangwe at Samsway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. I'm Dre at Diary on Twitter. So just going to jump in with some black girl magic news here on Pod Save the People, but just want to give a shout out and a congrats and a well-deserved to Yamish Alcindor, who is now moderator of Washington Week. Yay. Yay. Amazing. Hoya Saxa, girl. One of Yamish's first beats was uh, the protest. And we met her in Ferguson. There was like a group of them. I was like, Yamish, it was Wesley, it was Ryan, it was Matt at the LA Times. And it's been so incredible to see uh, her career grow. She It was PBS. She was White House correspondent when Trump was there. And now her own show, like following in the footsteps of Gwen Ifill, who was a legend in her own right. So Gwen was one of Yamisha's mentors. And she said when she found out that she was getting the show that she basically cried because it was just a full circle moment. And um, that means a lot. It's really incredible. It's just amazing. I mean, we have MSNBC on nonstop because that's who Powell has a contract with. So it's really nice. It's really nice when you meet, when I see her face. It's like whatever I'm doing in the kitchen or in the house, I'm just, she's one of those folks that when I see her on screen, I just, I, I turn the volume up and rush to the TV. So, so excited for this. She's been doing this work for a long time and doing it with a high level of excellence. And y'all's former president tried to get at her so many times. And I was just incredibly proud as a black woman, as a Georgetown alum, as a any as just a regular old human being, that she stood up, she stood her ground, she kept her intellectual heft, she never stooped to be as low and you know, whatever as he was. And yeah, she makes us proud. So I'm excited that she gets this opportunity. You know, the only thing that I'll add is uh, building off what Kaya said over, you know, the past four years, just seeing, you know, White House event after White House event, press conference after press conference, Trump would try to target women of color in particular um, repeatedly. And she never flinched. Like, as you said, Kaya, she stood her ground and like she made him look so small even though he was the president of the United States, right? And I think that that is, is excellence, right? That is like when you know that, that you are not only holding court, but your presence in that room, the way in which that she not only 
handled those attacks from the president, but like made him look wild and as, as crazy as he was in even trying, even attempting, I think was really key to see over the years. And I think that like she is better than anybody else to be in this position um, just after going through the most challenging of circumstances and emerging victorious. And now nobody even knows. I mean, we're not even talking about Trump that much anymore. So he's gone, we hope. So the news is actually, interestingly enough, my news is a little bit about Trump. And that is that last year, uh, in the context of the pandemic, one of the big packages of emergency legislation that was passed, uh, that was COVID relief, uh, signed into law last year, broadened eligibility for folks who are incarcerated in federal prison um, to get released to home confinement um, and alternatives to incarceration. Uh, and 24,000 people who are incarcerated at the federal level were released under that policy. Um, but in sort of the fine print, uh, in executive action taken um, by the Trump administration, they intended for that to expire. So right now there are as many as 24,000 people who were released under this policy, some of whom have already sort of completed their sentences and are released, others of whom face potentially being reincarcerated after the broadening of the eligibility is sort of repealed and we go back to the policy that was in place prior to COVID. Uh, and so this is an important conversation to have because this is happening sort of behind the scenes in the context of a historic reduction in the federal prison population over the past year or so in the context of the pandemic. Um, already the federal prison population has been reduced by over 20,000 um, from over 170,000 people incarcerated in 2019 down to 155,000 people incarcerated at the federal level in 2020. And now it's at 152,000 uh, according to the latest report um, from the Bureau of Federal Prisons. Incarceration rates at the federal level are, are reducing. This policy played a huge role in releasing a substantial number of people to home confinement and alternatives to incarceration, but it is set to expire um, as soon as the national emergency around COVID is declared over. Um, so organizers are working to try to get this policy extended and made permanent. Um, and at minimum to prevent the folks who are at risk of being reincarcerated, many of whom already have uh, new jobs and have already reintegrated into society, um, to prevent them from being uh, forced to return back to prison. There's an incredible group of advocates who signed a letter uh, led by the group Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And what's so wild is that the memo from the Office of Legal Counsel within the, the DOJ, it was issued on January 15th, 2021. They did this literally in like the last moment they were just trying to screw people. And the wildest part about it is that they didn't even, the people who were impacted by this, the people who were sent home as a part of the CARES Act, they had no clue that this was coming. The, the idea that they could be reincarcerated was a complete surprise to everybody when they issued this memo on January 15th. Only 21 of the 23,000 people who were put on home confinement, violated the terms of that home confinement at all. I hadn't even imagined that the federal government or any government could release people, especially at this scale, and then even offer the idea that they'd reincarcerate them. Like, that is wild to me. But to think about this coming out on January 15th, and I would say, you know, I'm sort of surprised that the Biden administration's take on this is like, that the pandemic is such a crisis that it'll last for so long that most people will be covered under the original CARES Act is sort of like their take on it. It's like, just rescind the memo. Just let these people stay home. Like, this doesn't need to be a waited out and see. It doesn't need to be a like, oh, everybody be fine. Just rescind the memo so that, that there is no question about the commitment here. It reemphasizes the question around what's the point of incarceration because these people came out, got jobs. I mean, one guy got a job in a month, right? And, you know, these are people clearly with records and, and who've had challenges in their lives, but people are working, they're taking online classes, they're supporting their families, they're paying child support, they are productive citizens. And that's ultimately what we want them to do and be. And it reopens the question around what is the point of imprisonment and confinement? What would be the point of putting these people back in when they are being quite productive? I think what I've been searching for when it comes to anything around mass incarceration or criminal legal system when it comes to this administration is like, who in charge? 
So Susan Rice is head of domestic policy. Biden and Garland aren't the ones that are solving this ultimately. Like who are the people in the room that are making the decisions and what outreach and what engagement is happening with organizers and advocates? Me being nosy and poking around and making phone calls still don't really know who the consortium, who the collective is across this administration that's working on these issues. So I think that's what I'm still searching for is like, who's in charge and like this is like a piece of everything else that we need to know around this really huge issue, which we were promised lots of things when all of us folks of color, young folks came out to vote. And I feel like we still just don't have enough information about who's in charge, what the thought process is, what the engagement and community strategy is, and how we ultimately get at some solves here. My news this week is about my hometown, Mount Vernon, New York. Mount Vernon, New York is a uh, predominantly black city um, just outside of New York City. We are a part of Westchester County, which is one of the wealthiest and whitest counties in the United States of America. And we are 4.4 square miles, but we are mighty. We also pay the highest tax rate in Westchester County, uh, which then begs the question, why do we have a problem with our sewage and our wastewater infrastructure collapsing all over town? Let me tell you what it looks like. And this article comes out of The Guardian. Um, People are using wet vacs to suck up toilet waste and tub water. People's houses smell like sewage. Um, Sludge floods out of people's toilets. Storm drains are spilling raw waste into the Hutchinson River and the Bronx River. A thousand households are at a risk of floods or unable to flush their toilets. And there's constant sewage flooding. This is in 2021. The annual assessment by the American Society of Civil Engineers um, gave America a D plus for our wastewater networks. This is an issue all across America. But as you can guess, communities of color are bearing an outsized share of the burden of these crumbling infrastructures. Um, In fact, um, when you read the article and you're hearing from the perspective of all of these black people in Mount Vernon, what they tell you is whiter towns near Mount Vernon have sewage infrastructure that works just fine. How did this happen? The sewage pipes weren't properly maintained for decades. Um, They are now trying to locate all of the leaks and collapses and blockages. Um, But this sewer network is over 100 years old, and it was made to serve a a population that was 40% smaller than what Mount Vernon currently carries. Um, In the 80s, the county of Westchester dumped lots of Black people from other towns in the county into Mount Vernon. And so we're a small place with a bulging population and an infrastructure that cannot support it. The pipes are old and corroded. They're overburdened. Oh, and by the way, they are coated in layers of grime because some of y'all don't know how to dispose of your cooking oil. You put it in your sink, and that is a problem. (laughs) So... um, I mean, you know, my people, my people, you, that's why you have a, that's why you have a can on the counter that so that you put your oil in the can and you dispose of your oil properly. Otherwise you mess up the, the water waste systems. Anyway, as a, where do, where do people put it? If they don't put it in the sink, you put it in a can. You're not supposed to put oil down the sink. Oh, don't put it in the sink. Do that's not where, put it in the sink. I don't sink. cook at all. That's, so I don't, that's I don't, I'm not putting oil anywhere. That's good. That's great. <laughs> If you didn't get that, don't put your oil in the sink, y'all. Y'all messing up. Y'all the reason why the pipes don't work. In New York State, there is a $34.1 billion, with a B, dollar funding gap for wastewater infrastructure. As I said, this is a problem across the country. Um, in Mount Vernon, they suspect that it's a $100 million job. City of Mount Vernon's budget is like $100 million. And so the county and the state have to kick in, but the state has deficiencies and clearly the county is not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, Thankfully, New York State is considering 
$3 billion in environmental bonds for wastewater infrastructure targeting low-income communities. That's helpful. Um, That goes to a vote in November. The Senate also passed a bill last week to improve water and wastewater infrastructure that is worth about $35 billion for state programs. Um, That was sponsored by Senator Tammy Duckworth, um, who has spent a lot of time in Centerville, Missouri, outside of St. Louis, which is a little black town just like Mount Vernon that is seeing all of the same problems that Mount Vernon is seeing. And so let's hope that the House takes this up. But, you know, we're talking about all kinds of other things. And in 2021, we have uh, black places where the wastewater is not properly disposed of, y'all. We got things to fix and things to do. And this is no one community's problem. This is what communities, cities, states, counties all have to work together to do this infrastructure stuff right. It's ridiculous that people have raw sewage floating up in their homes in 2021. This is a series that The Guardian is actually doing in partnership with our beloved Catherine Flowers, who we've talked about on the pod before, who I talk about ad nauseum. Catherine is an environmental justice activist. She's an award-winning researcher And if you all remember, Catherine is based in Montgomery, but her work is primarily in Lowndes County, Alabama, and another place where Black folks are living in waste. And the other thing that Catherine talks about is the fact that now in rural parts of the country, new tropical diseases are surfacing that have literally not been here for 100 years because of the fact that people are living in waste and just a myriad of environmental you know, injustice issues that are happening across the country. For y'all, if you want to learn more about this issue, Catherine Flowers is someone to follow, to read her work. Um, she has a book called Waste that she actually put out um, last year that is phenomenal. So thank you, Catherine, for the work that you continue to do in this partnership with The Guardian is fantastic. So I think, you know, Kaya, this story, they're, they're going to be more of these to come to really highlight, you know, this just isn't happening to Black folks in rural areas. It's happening to Black folks that live 30 minutes outside of New York City, which is wild. So it's wild to read this story and then see that in the context of the conversation that's happening in the news around a potential infrastructure bill in Congress, where, I mean, just this past week, there was an article uh, on NBC News, um, and the, the headline is, Biden pursues GOP infrastructure deal as anxious Democrats watch the clock. So, I mean, like, there's this whole conversation around bipartisanship and consensus, and is Biden going to be working with Republicans, Republicans who've offered a relatively small proposal around infrastructure compared to what Democrats have offered, uh, and who want to limit and cut out as many things that would help communities of color as possible from that bill, and limit it to, like, roads and bridges, and, like, we need to talk about water. We need to talk about sanitation. Like we need to talk about the basics, basics, basics and invest particularly in communities that have been intentionally marginalized. And so like we need these investments yesterday. There's no reason to hold them up on, you know, needing Republican support, which we know is not going to happen. Didn't happen last time, unlikely to happen this time. Like they just need to move these things through using reconciliation and make sure that they're actually making the investments in communities and not sort of trying to cut things out that would actually benefit communities in order to secure one or two or zero Republican votes. You know, Sam, I'm happy that you brought it up. It's, you know, when you look at the Biden plan, it's $111 billion for water, just water. Like that doesn't include the $200 billion for housing, the $300 billion for manufacturing, the $400 billion for home care services and the workforce in general or the $600 billion for transportation. And you look at the Republican bill, and they're proposing $35 billion for drinking water and wastewater and $14 billion for water storage. And it's just like, y'all don't even care. Y'all don't even care. It doesn't matter. Your water's fine, so you're not worried about it. You're going to get good water. You're going to get good water in Congress or in your mansion. But you're going to be fine. And it's like... It's just so nakedly selfish, you know, like that's just you're like, we can't even help the people get water. Like, I hope I'm never that. I mean, that's just a gateway to hell selfish. You're just like, wow. So that just makes me sad. 
the other thing that I'd say is a reminder that when the world opens back up, there'll be a lot of work to do. And I hope that like the sheer number of jobs that will open up, like I'm hoping that this will be an influx of cash into people's pockets, into communities that like does actually help the economy do all this stuff. And like, this should be a New Deal-esque infusion of money back into society. And I'm hopeful for that. So I think about, you know, we talked before about free pre-K and 3K and 4K and like all of these, this is the moment that people should be pressing big. And the third thing I'll say is, I don't know if y'all saw McConnell. Do you do that McConnell quote where he's like, he's just here to stop Biden's agenda? Did you see that quote? Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know why we have to be, you know, that relation, that that quote about relationships, if you find yourself always having to be the bigger person, like find a new place to be in or something, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's us. Yeah. We always got to be the bigger person. That man is on TV. This is not secret audio he is very publicly like my job is just to stop that you're like why are you stopping water help like why why are you that guy i think we need to let go of being the good guys i I did see and we can talk about this in another episode that some people are projecting that we're not gonna have a majority in the house after the next midterms if the numbers are looking fuzzy Mm -hmm. Uh, and that just worries me so we should get everything in in these two years right now and fight like hell to do it because that's what we didn't do at the beginning of obama time Actually, building on that, like, did you see this past week, Florida passed legislation implementing the same types of voter restrictions as were passed in Georgia. So like Florida, Georgia, I think Texas just sent something along to the governor that is similar. Iowa did already sign into law restrictions. So like these are all the these are all the battleground states like that's the map, right? Like that's already passed. So like, you know, this is wild what the Republicans are doing. We need to talk about the Voting Rights Act like every single day, I feel like talking about a few House seats, if we're going to lose the House next time, like we're not going to have the House or the Senate ever again if the Republicans just keep rigging the maps. So my news this week is from the New York Times. It is a beautiful piece about Dina Lawson, who's an incredible photographer. I think what makes this extra special, this piece, is that it was written by Jenna Wortham, who, if you don't know her, get to know her. She's incredible. Um, She's a cultural critic at the New York Times. She's co-editor of the book Black Futures. It's an anthology of poems and essays and visual expressions. I might be in it, y'all. But check it out. Is that right? I have that book. I got to check it out. (laughs) Um, And so she writes this incredible piece on Dina Lawson. And I first encountered Dina Lawson actually in, I think it was 2019 or 18 at the Underground Museum where she was having an exhibition. Underground Museum is something else I want y'all to know about. It is probably, I would say, um, one of the most important cultural institutions in our country. It's in Los Angeles. It was founded by the late Noah Davis, who's a painter, and his wife, who's also a brilliant artist um, in her own right, Karan Davis. Dina Lawson was showing her work. It was also the night that I didn't meet Brad Pitt, but Brad Pitt was there I wish as my date, but he just was there also enjoying her work. So we have we have Dina Lawson in common, Brad Pitt and I. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to bring this to the pod because it's a beautiful marriage between these two incredible women in terms of Jenna's written word and also just the reflections on Dina's, obviously, her her, her visual work. And it really talks a lot about, one, just how photography has been used, you know, obviously not in just the American context, but in a kind of global context to really oppress black people, right? Like, so our images, representations of us now, centuries and centuries have been so negative. Um, So it talks about photography, like when it was invented, essentially, how folks like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth use photography and use imagery as a way to say, you know, this is what black brilliance looks like. This is who black people are. Um, and it was very, very intentional to really try to change the narrative around what not just white folks, but what black people, what they thought about when they thought about a black person. I thought this was just so beautiful. And it really, one of the things that I did not know that was so fascinating about this is Dina Lawson's actually from Rochester, New York. It's her hometown, but it's also where the Kodak Empire is headquartered. You know, when you think of photography, you think of like Kodak and Fuji, and it's like those two kind of, you know, massive empires. But anyway, so she's from Rochester. That's where Kodak is. Her paternal grandmother evidently cleaned the house of George Eastman, Kodak's founder. 
Um, Lawson's mother did administrative work for the company for more than 30 years. And then another piece of interesting history for her as well in terms of her family tree is that her auntie Sylvia was one of the first black female ophthalmologists in upstate New York in a, in a pioneer in laser surgery. So all that to say, just like, you know, the confluence of these different things as a part of her identity, a part of her her history. And now she's gone on to, you know, be this incredible photographer and really, you know, make her life's work the reimagining of blackness. Um, I just thought it was just so fascinating. I want y'all to check it out. It is a very long read. So, you know, get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, find some quiet time and sit through it and read every word. Um, You not only learn about Dina Lawson, but you learn about some other artists who also are pioneers and folks that have paved the way in black cultural expression, black cultural creativity. And one of the quotes from this piece that I loved is that there's an infinite spectrum of possibility with black creativity, and it might not align with what you want to see. So just a fascinating piece. Check it out, y'all. I just wanted to bring it to the pod because I love talking about black cultural production. I went to the Underground Museum in L.A. Uh, I saw that exhibit in person. I got there like 30 minutes before they closed. They, they, you know, when people are looking at you like, please don't linger because we closing on time. I'm like, I get it. Uh, and what was so, I feel like I've been to so many art museums over the past five years at the very least. And what I will always remember from seeing her, these photographs was they just felt so honest and un, like sometimes you people are trying to create a moment. You're like, okay, okay. You're trying to like get all the black things in one photo. I got it. This one, I, I her, I was like, this is my grandmother's house. These are people at my grandmother's house. That's like what it felt like. I was like, this is my grandmother's house with like all this stuff everywhere, but in order. There's like an order to it. You're like, yes, there are 50 frames on that counter. Why are there 50 frames on the counter in the living room? I don't know, but it's always been 50. And the next graduation, it's going to be 51. And the next birthday, it'll be 52. And like, that's what I, that's what I got from her. Her images just felt honest to me. I feel like there was like a, we went through this aesthetic of like stripping blackness of like, you know, showing black people in like flower patches and with glitter and with all that, like it was sort of that, that was this aesthetic. You're like, okay, cool. There was a political purpose to that too. Uh, or it was like in bare moments. So it was like in the kitchen, in the living room, in your house, but like not really with anything or it was like perfect. It was like the perfectly cropped bed. And, and this one was like, this is actually what my grandmother's house looked like. It looked like things are sort of out of place, but they weren't really out of place. But that's what the ceiling has always had that little thing at the top of it. And you're like, I don't know why the ceiling has had that thing, but it's been there since Aunt Mink was in college, you know, like, or in high school and Aunt Sheena was in college. Like that, I don't know, it just felt honest. And I've always loved and appreciated how honest her work felt to an experience that I understood. In the article, they described it as familiarity doesn't equate to access. Lawson sitters tend not to look directly into the camera with a cool self-possession that spells out the power dynamic, lest you be confused by the rawness of the scene. Her subjects are not at the viewer's mercy. We are merely observing and lucky for the privilege to do so. So this idea that like we don't exist for the pleasure of the viewer or for white, the white gaze, or like all of those things don't, uh, aren't the purpose of this. This is actually about just, just showcasing life as it is, showcasing people and their brilliance and their beauty sort of as they are without the need for um, sort of all of this performance of blackness, which I think is really, really cool and really stood out to me. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert, Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and 
It is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now... Whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Desert Mead is amazing. He's a formerly homeless citizen who overcame a host of obstacles to eventually become the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy, and a graduate of Florida International University College of Law. Here's my discussion with him about how Florida can overcome its currently oppressive voting laws. Desmond Mead, the one and only. Thank you for coming back to Pod Save the People. Hey, let's great. It's a pleasure and an honor to be back. We first talked to you when you were leading the fight around the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, around people who were convicted of felonies and giving them the right to vote back in Florida. Can you tell us how did that end? We haven't talked to you since. And where is the state of that work right now? Wow, DeRay, man. Let me tell you, a lot has happened since I was on. You know, we ended up passing uh, Amendment 4, uh, which restored voting rights to 1.4 million people who passed felony convictions. And immediately after that, you know, we had a, a legislature and governor uh, who insisted on getting involved in the implementation of Amendment 4. And they, uh, emerging from legislative session, were a law that required people pay outstanding uh, legal financial obligations before they were able to enjoy the benefits of Amendment 4. And, um, of course, there was an immediate lawsuit that was filed by the ACLU and many other groups. There was a bunch of back and forth with that. We won in the lower courts. The state appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and they reversed the lower court's ruling. And as of today, individuals who have outstanding legal financial obligations cannot register to vote until they satisfy their legal financial obligations. Um, so there's some good news and bad news there, right? And so the bad news is is that you know this requirement to pay these legal financial obligations uh, has directly impacted over 774,000 of the 1.4 million returning citizens uh, who now are forced to choose between uh, you know putting food on their table or voting, or, or forced to choose between paying their rent or mortgage or voting. Uh, and, and, and that's a very sad state of affairs for our democracy, for any American, that we shouldn't have to pay to have access to the ballot box. But the good news is there still remains over 600,000 individuals who do not have to pay fines and fees who can register to vote right now today. The other good news is the fact that we didn't you know just cry about you know these restrictions. 
we went out and we did something about it, and we started a campaign to raise money to help people pay their fines and fees. And last year, we was able to raise over $27 million uh, to help folks out, and we paid out over $27 million, which cleared the way for, I believe, over 44,000 returning citizens to be able to register to vote and participate in our democracy. And as of today, that fund is still going. We're still raising money into that fund. We're still helping people pay off their fines and fees. And we have another alternative by using of some courts to waive those fines and fees. But we're pushing forward, man. And um, we're not letting these obstacles get us down too much. We're going to take those obstacles and turn them into opportunities to organize, or mobilize, right, and turn people out to the polls. Do you know how much money you need? Like, do you, do we know the total number of what the aggregate of all the fines and fees cost? You know, DeRay, that's a good question. That's a question that folks have been asking now over the past year and a half. You know, at the end of the day, it's really hard to just put your finger on one set number. We know that there are billions of dollars that's owed to the court system because our Florida legislature have really put the onus or the burden, I should say, on uh, the courts to fund itself through the creation of funding revenues such as fines, fees, costs, things of that nature. And so that number really, it jumps around. Uh, what we know is that a significant portion of the money that's owed can be found in restitution that's owed. And so, uh, for instance, in one judicial circuit in Florida, uh, restitution accounts for uh, a little over 75 percent of monies owed to the court system. And what, can you explain what restitution is to people? You know, if I were to break into your car and steal your your Apple iPro, right, and I got caught, and there's a statute that says if I do that, I face up to five years in prison uh, and up to a $500 fine. All right, so I'm found guilty of that. The judge sentenced me to a year in prison and orders me to pay a $250 fine. That $250 is a legal financial obligation that is punitive in nature that's attached to uh, the crime that I committed. Then the judge goes on and say, but you know what, Desmond? You broke the raised window, and it cost him $400 to replace that window, so I'm ordering you to pay $400 to the Ray in restitution. That's also another form of legal financial obligation that a person must satisfy before they're able to register to vote. And then, of course, you have the other legal financial obligations, which are not necessarily punitive in nature, but they're administrative in nature, and more or less the cost of doing business in court, right? Like court costs and some other weird fees, like in Florida, if you're too poor to afford an attorney, the court must appoint an attorney for you, and that's usually in the form of a public defender. But once you appointed a public defender, you're assessed a public defender's fee uh, uh, to pay for the public defender. Wow, I didn't, that is uh, that sort of wild. What else are you working on? Are there other things that, that are important that we need to think about when we think about what's happening with Florida around civil rights or voting or or criminalizing things or decriminalizing things? What else is there? Well, you know, I think that what we're working on in Florida, I believe, should be worked on in every state in this country, especially, you know, what we're seeing over the last several months in response to the just the avalanche of, of legislation that's uh, being produced and signed into law uh, that restricts uh, voting, that criminalizes protesting, and all of these crazy uh, uh, laws that we're seeing emerging, the, the power that we possess only shows up if we're registered to vote and we show up at the polls. And we have uh, this phenomena of how do we get people who are enraged or dissatisfied with how this country is being run or the, the systems that have been in place to brutalize and murder and marginalize uh, people of color. How do we get people who are upset with that to actually make sure that they're registered to vote and turn out to vote? You know, as we look at returning citizens or people with previous felony convictions, by, just by sheer numbers, 
we have more than enough to make a difference in local elections as well as statewide and national elections. But the key is actually getting those folks to be registered and turned out to the polls. And so the work that we're doing is that we're we're like the evangelists of, of democracy, right? Talking about how uh, we really understand the value of the right to vote and how we honor that value by actually turning out the vote or understanding the sacrifices and respecting the sacrifices that our ancestors made. You know, there was so much blood that was shed on these soils uh, just so people like me can have the right to vote, have ancestors that was hung, bitten, burned, beaten, just so I could have the right to vote and how the only way that we could really honor those sacrifices that folks made is by actually utilizing what they fought so hard for, gave their life for. And that's voting. I think we've shown in various areas across the country that if we show up, good things can happen, right? If we show up at the polls, then justice can show up in the courts. If we don't show up, then bad things uh, are going to happen in a much broader sense and probably more frequently. But we have to, the work that we're doing is engaging returning citizens, letting them know that they cover the gap and encouraging them to turn out, especially paying attention to local races because local politics impact us the most. Who's running for judge? Who's running for uh, district attorney? Who's running for sheriff? Who's running for these mayors and these school board seats? And getting engaged and let level of engagement trickle up towards uh, top of the ticket. Uh, races or national races. Now, would the For the People Act, if it passed, would that impact your work at all, the one that's in the Congress right now? It definitely would. Uh, one aspect of it, you know, and, and folks have to realize that the states have leeway on how they're managing their election process. And typically, it, it's definitely with an iron fist as it relates to state and local elections. But For the People Act throws a wild card in there by mandating what states can do for federal elections, right? The reason why I say it's a wild card is because the states will be hard-pressed to have two different election systems or two different election criteria and trying to run them at the same time because you have federal elections that are held at the same time as state elections. Just the sheer cost and the logistic nightmare that would occur if they try to manage two different systems would be enough to force them to align uh, their practices with the federal guidelines. And so, yes, I think it would have a direct impact by forcing states to change their policies to align itself. I'd love to know, too, you know, you led this fight. It was wild. There was an incredible team of people who y'all were all together, and we were proud to be amongst that team And in certain ways. Now, what did you learn? Like, what are the lessons as an organizer you learned from this whole process? You know, there are a lot of organizers who listen to the pod. Not many have been through a campaign all the way through in the way that you have. So what did you learn during that process? One of the things that jump out at me is the fact that we can't limit ourselves to who can talk to us or who we can talk to. You know, a lot of the issues that we fight for is much broader than we give credit to. And we sometimes, because of, uh, of labels, uh, we actually uh, forego on the opportunity to engage uh, with other folks who can be supportive of the movement, that can be supportive of our efforts. You know, the thing I liked about Amendment 4 was that we elevated Amendment 4 above partisan politics and even to a certain degree above explicit racial biases, right? We took it to a place that allowed us to connect with each other along the lines of humanity, in spite of your uh, political beliefs, religious beliefs, in spite of your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status, we were able to connect with people in a very uh, powerful way, which then allowed us to, number one, neutralize opposition towards the work that we're doing. Because when you think about having a ballot initiative that will restore voting rights to people with felony convictions and doing it in the state, such as divisive as Florida that was rife with fear and hatred and division, uh, and but yet we were able to do so without any major opposition, right? That speaks to the fact of us being able to connect with people on a broad spectrum and move them and, and really insulate our issues 
or have it insulated with this common core value system about how we should treat other human beings, right? And and it showed up on election night when we had over 5.1 million people who voted yes on Amendment 4. And the interesting thing about that was at least a million of those people voted for our current governor, which showed that there was a broad cross-section of support. Those 5.1 million uh, votes, they weren't based on hate. They weren't based on fear. They weren't based on division, but rather they were based on love, forgiveness, and redemption. I think we showed the world that we can move major issues around love, right? And that love can, in fact, win the day. You know, instead of having to uh, approach a campaign in a divisive way or in a way that would would marginalize people who could possibly be supporting this, we, we engaged in the campaign that allowed space uh, for people from all walks of life to be a part of. So there are people listening who followed you the first go-round. They want to know how they can help you. What do you say to those people? <laughs> well, I tell you, one of the things, they can directly help us by contributing to our fines and fees fund. You know, um, they can go to our website and contribute. It's tax deductible. Uh, and those monies would uh, go towards helping us pay off fines and fees of individuals who are just too poor to pay these uh, legal financial obligations. They could also, you know, uh, volunteer with the organization. You know, there's always a need, you know, like I said, we have, I would say over 600,000 folks that we need to have a conversation with what we call the Juneteenth phenomenon, right? Because you know uh, the story around Juneteenth, the slaves in Galveston didn't find out they were free until two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, we're experiencing that not only in Florida, but even in other states. You know, last year or even, yeah, last year, we were able to engage with folks in Georgia. They were returning citizens in Georgia who did not know that they were eligible to vote, right? And I think that we have to do a better job of getting the word out to individuals and engaging these individuals in not in a transactional way, but in a relational way to where, you know, we're having genuine concerns about the issues that they care about and talk to them about how being a part of democracy uh, could help change those conditions, right? And so folks can volunteer with us, phone bank with us to reach out to folks who are eligible to be registered to vote but are not. Uh, They could help us reach out to folks who we're going to be working with to uh, pay their fines and fees off, get them engaged in democracy. There's a ton of work to be done. And then folks can do work in their respective states as well, because I think collectively um, we do need to pick up the pace. So with this recent spat of voter suppression or what I like to call attacks on democracy, you know, I believe that the perfect response to these efforts is aggression. That means that these laws that are, are designed to pick people off from the margins, right, and, and, and disenfranchise the people in the margins, that if they're going to disenfranchise 2,000, that means we ought to be out there registering 4,000, right, 5,000, and turning these people out to the polls and making sure that we're exacting consequences on these politicians that seems like they don't mind trying to destroy our democracy. Well, we appreciate you coming on the pod. We always consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate that. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Chanel Powell is a co-chair of the Local Progress Dare to Reimagine organization. Here is our discussion about Arizona and Ever Forum. Chanel, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having me, DeRay. I'm excited to be on your show. Now, it feels like we met a million years ago. <laughs> and since then, you have just done so much. So I have a million questions. So let's jump right in. First, can you tell people where you are, uh, how you got involved in the work of justice around race and equity? Let's start there and then we'll go deeper. First of all, my name is Chanel Poe. I am a private citizen now uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I started getting involved in the social justice movement. I didn't realize, I would say maybe when I was younger, my father was incarcerated. So going to see him in jail really helped shape the way I developed a relationship with him. Fast forward, I became a mother of a Black son. And when my child first started going to school and he was enrolled in preschool, I dealt with mistreatment. To my child. I started getting phone calls in preschool about different behaviors. Uh, I was a mother who had to learn how to have a job that was flexible so that I can go spend time in my son's school and classroom and volunteer to help support his education. Even as he got older, all the way up to his senior year, even with me being an elected official in the school education system, I still had to deal with stereotypes and educators who did not believe in my son's ability to succeed. And living here in Arizona, you know, Black folks, we are a minority. We are a a culture that is not widely included in a lot of decision-making. And and a lot of times when it is, it's a certain few. Um, So what really, you know, fueled me to really get engaged was 2012, and it was Trayvon Martin. I had a job. I was working with the Greater Phoenix Black Chamber of Commerce. I was all about, you know, Black businesses uh, connecting us to resources to help us strengthen ourselves. And I noticed that there were gaps that continued to persist. And when the murder of Trayvon Martin occurred, I was floored. I was heartbroken and I had to do something. Uh, We had recently had a new mayoral election of a race. And I never planned a rally before in my life. The reason I bring up that I work with the chamber, because sometimes that can be frowned upon working with the chamber of commerce or organization, and you have your membership director essentially protesting. I called the mayor and I said, hey, I need a permit. We need to make this happen. And that was one of the ways I first made my voice heard. Since then, you know, I have stood for equity and justice for those who were unjustly uh, had excessive force used against them by police officers, uh, remain Brisbane was a father in Phoenix who was going to visit his child to take them McDonald's. And the police got a call because he was playing loud music. And they ended up shooting and killing him while he was at the door uh, to greet his child. To have some sort of community engagement is what really went, where it really started. Now, you spent a long time on the school board. What was that like? I was so appreciative that there was an opportunity for me to be a part of a governing body and to really take my social justice, you know, to the next level. And I was understanding the education system. Barriers persist, gaps persist. Wanted to utilize what I've learned from my firsthand experience in a governance role. There are deep inequities within our educational system. I was in a school district um, where we serve 2,300 or 2,200 students. 90% are on free reduced lunch. You have a population of 65% Latino, 21% African-American, 6% white, 6% other. And we had to do our best to meet needs. A lot of these conversations were not being had when I joined the board direct. And I gave my all, meaning my time, expertise. That means developing myself to understand how the system actually works to create sustainable policies, to create a culture of inclusion where students can thrive. And that took a lot of work in terms of the nine equity-based school board resolutions that included um, an anti-hate 
also a trauma responsive, a civilian oversight and community review board. Uh, school board members, different levels of, uh, of different bodies can encourage other bodies. We were trying to encourage the city council uh, to develop a civilian oversight board. Also, no firearms on campuses. One thing that I noticed when we would receive updates from staff, specifically centered around gifted, the numbers of students of color was always low. And I always wonder why were there disparities and also what could we do to eradicate them? So I'm really pleased before I ended up leaving the school board in 2020, uh, we approved our gifted scope and sequence, which will have verbal, nonverbal, and quantitative. So therefore, every student in the district, and this is an elementary school district, this is a K uh, through eighth grade district, uh, will have an opportunity to be screened for gifted. You know, the school board is set up typically for people, especially like in the state of Arizona, we are not compensated. This is full on volunteer. So you have people who face challenges being black and brown trying to run for office, but then dedicating that time and not really understanding what type of structure you need to follow in order to be most successful. So for me, it was about getting training within the state, but also on a national level so that I can meet peers who are also uh, doing this work. You know, we were able to institute board retreats. We were able to institute a strategic plan. Uh, we were one of the first districts in the state to adopt the 1619 project curriculum. Um, I was able to help champion teachers to receive adverse childhood experiences, professional development training, and also implicit bias and cultural competency training. We adopted a new role for pandemic officers. When we see student discipline, this was one of the things that I was most passionate about. We never even looked at the numbers in our own district. I would attend conferences, education-based conferences, and we will always talk about the trends, but there was, you know, little talk about what districts are actually doing to combat that. So that conversation led to the district developing the first restorative justice center uh, in the state and also looking at our student parent handbook and how we have harmful policies inside of there. And quick story behind that is I, I participate in the African-American State Legislative Days uh, that's held annually, but they also have a youth day. What a great opportunity for students uh, in our urban school district to attend the state legislature where laws are enacted and made. Well, our middle schoolers were able to debate whether they wanted uniforms. <laughs> and when they had that debate at the state legislature during Youth Day, they brought that back to the superintendent. Uh, the board was really passionate about the superintendent really listening to the voices of students and what they would like to see. And now the middle schoolers don't wear uniforms anymore. Just before I left the district and my tenure ended at the end of December 2020, we were able to hire the first African-American female superintendent, which completely changed the game and was able to more so directly align with the vision and also the language and policies that the board was trying to go. It was quite the experience. I feel very accomplished that, you know, we were able to get a lot done, but at the same time, there is still uh, more work to be done. And I just wish that we had more school board members who truly took time to develop themselves but who, who could really understand how to have that balance to really be there? Because, again, so much I, I can be so grateful for that we were able to do. I mean, I met a pastor from Chicago who had a program called Real Men Read. And this is where he wanted men of color, professional men, to come to school and read to students. We end up instituting that in one of our schools. The arts community. I could kind of go on, Deray. It's, it's, it's a, again, it's a lot, a lot of great, great work, and I'm willing to, you know, discuss particular areas. What were some misconceptions you had? You know, you, you had never been on a school board before, so all of a sudden you get in, you are a power player, and you're not somebody on the outside anymore. What was that like? What did you have to learn? Like, what was different? What, what did you think was going to be the case and it wasn't the case? Man, it was hard for me as a Black woman, right? Um, somebody who is very connected to community, you know, someone who has came from protest to the boardroom, right? It was a, this thing about decorum, you know, it was always about how do I, do I deliver things. And that really fueled my fire uh, to really get that development. One thing is interesting, DeRay, you have some school boards 
who wholeheartedly believe in professional development for their board members. And then you have others who frown upon it. They see it as a waste of the district resources. And my question to you is that how can you sit on a governing body and make decisions based upon your own ideologies and your own perspective, opposed to looking at all of the facts and just really understanding what's going on and being aware of what's happening within our system. I mean, that was a shift. It was typical for a president that met one-on-one with the superintendent when all board members have an opportunity to meet one-on-one. But I made a point to continually meet with the superintendent to talk about ideas, to share things that I see as someone who have children who I step foot outside my door who go to school in my district. And guess what? They're looking at me and these families are depending on individuals like myself to make the right decisions to improve the quality of life for their children. You know, I have been blocked from professional development, you know, as I grew in governance, you know, different organizations would want me to speak at their conferences. And sometimes since it's something board members who have very little experience in professional development would play politics. I'm not with that, DeRay. That was something that was new for me, like playing this game. This position, first of all, was not set up for people like me to want to be full-time, to want to dedicate that time, to try to understand and strike that balance in their lives so that they can give all that they need to to help shift the system. Constantly being in a state where I have to defend myself And to really prove my work, I mean, I truly had to come with receipts when putting such language on the board agenda, whether it be resolutions or even talking about coronavirus resources for our community. I tried to bring it up and it was a board member that was just like, I don't understand why this is on the agenda. And I said, well, we have people who are being evicted right now who are losing their homes. We know that what our poverty weight, 13% poverty weight within our community. We know that nutrition, you know, we provide at the school district, provide uh, free and reduced lunch to all students because it was already at 90%. So again, it was about truly understanding like what the needs were. And I had to slay dragons in the process. You know, you had to fight in the process, trying to get adults to do what you want them to do or to put in as much time is very challenging, you know, but I'm very grateful My board members, they taught me a lot, and it was time that was necessary because the students in the district deserved better, and they deserved drastic change, not incrementally, uh, but immediately. And why didn't you run again? (laughs) So it's like this, DeRay. I did not want to take up, like, so much space, right? Like, I felt like I put my time in. I came and did what I was supposed to do. Now, let me open that space up to someone else who has a desire to want to govern and to want to improve our educational system. I felt as if it was my time. You know, again, one of the issues that we had was spending. We would get audited by the Auditor General that said that we were approving budgets that had inflation and administrative salaries per pupil. It was ranked very high. So pulling the veil back on how we are spending our money, making sure the governing board plays a very active role and where dollars are going, who are getting contracts. When you look at our vendor list, there was not local small businesses who have, you know, the bonds and who have the insurance to go out to provide a service that the district needs. We had to, thanks to one of my colleagues, who championed a responsible contract agreement, which I thought was brilliant, so that we can back out of associations. There's like this association where architects, contractors, and what have you are already pre-approved. So it kind of locks out the little guy who, again, is bonded and insured. Understanding and learning, you know, those type of things. And I feel like we were able to get that implemented into policy and adopted as policy, these are the breadcrumbs for the next board and the next set of leaders to come in to follow. They just have to understand that, you know, you have to read the board policies and resolutions and hold the district accountable. But I felt as if my job was done and I was really grateful for the experience and for the culture shift that we were able to do collectively in the district. 
We can see you in front of the pod and can't wait to have you back. I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. People get encouraged. Accountability is on the march and we need to be a part of it. If you're not satisfied with your elected officials, why don't you understand and learn the office so that you potentially one day could be the person to help govern lives and help close the gaps um, that we have within our communities. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 